What's going on, church family? How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Good. Good to be with you all today. We are talking about marriage, and most of you guys know that I am the campus pastor over at our Cedar Lake campus, but some of you might not know that I also oversee all of our premarital counseling here at the church, and it is an absolute joy uh, for me to be able to be involved um, in the lives of young couples as they enter into this new season of marriage and to be able to walk alongside them and help them discover what the scriptures have to say about marriage. So it's with this kind of joy that I talk to you all about marriage uh, this weekend. This is also a personal interest to me as I've been married for 10 years. So I got a little bit of, uh, you know, I, I, got, I got a little bit of a veteran kind of aspect here. 10 years, I think that's legitimate. I think that's, uh, I think that's respectable. Um, so we're talking about marriage uh, this weekend. Now, in talking about marriage, I recognize that not all of us are married. I recognize that. Uh, I also recognize that if we were to go around this room and kind of scan and get all the relationship status data from everybody in this room, there would be a variety of relational circumstances here. Some good, some bad, some difficult, some complicated, and everywhere in between. But regardless of our current relationship status, it is this issue of marriage that we're addressing this weekend. And more specifically, when we talk about marriage, I want to talk about what it means and what it looks like to have a marriage that has the gospel at the very center. Now, I need to clarify what I mean when I say gospel. When I say gospel, I mean the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. When I say gospel, I mean truths pertaining to the coming of Jesus, the sinless life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the victorious resurrection of Jesus, and the soon return of Jesus. When I say gospel, I mean the good news that God has come to rescue a rebellious race of hell-bent humans to transform them into a community of worshipers. When I say gospel, I mean the good news that God offers forgiveness for sins and new life in Christ freely by his grace through faith in Christ. What I want to do today is show you what the gospel has to do with marriage and how marriage functions best with the gospel at the center. So with that, we start with the design of marriage. We need to begin and see how God designed marriage. My first point is this, marriage is designed by God to display the gospel. Marriage is designed by God to display the gospel. Let's look at the first half of that point. Marriage is designed by God. And for this, we're going to go to Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 1, and we're going to do kind of like a, a flyover of Genesis 2 and look at this early account here to find the design of marriage. A biblical understanding of marriage begins with recognizing that marriage was God's design. And it's clear to see that marriage was God's design in the diverse way that he created us, mankind, humans, Genesis 1, 27 and 28 tells us this. So God created man, singular, one race, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so here we see that God created mankind very specifically, male and female, and for a very specific purpose. And it was after he had designed this relationship, mankind in this way, in verse 31, he says, it's very good. Very good. His design of man as male and female and the rest of his creation was very good. And Genesis 2 tells us how God got to this very good point in his design. 
Beginning in Genesis 2.18, we read this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God now tells us how he got to this point of making them male and female. And the Bible says that it wasn't always male and female. For a short time, it was just male. And Adam was all alone. Verse 18 begins with God declaring that Adam's solitude, his aloneness is not good. It's not good that the man should be alone. That's what God says at the beginning of verse 18. The verse ends with God seeking to bring completion to this relational design of marriage. I will make a helper fit for him. But here's what I want you to notice. It was God who saw the deficiency in Adam, not Adam who saw the deficiency in himself. God saw the deficiency, and it was God's own declaration that it was not good that this man should be alone. So he sought to make it complete. I will make a helper fit for him. It's his declaration, his initiative, and his design. And now what God does in the story is he does something seemingly cruel, seemingly mean. After he declares that it's not good that man should be alone, he creates and then parades all the animals in front of Adam for him to name. And animal after animal after male and female animal, they pass by him, and verse 20 says this, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Cue sad music, okay? Adam's bummed, right? Adam is bummed. And he's like, hey, giraffe gets a gal? Hippo gets a honey? Lion gets a lady? Walrus gets a wife? I wonder if we can run through the whole animal kingdom and do this alliteration thing. (laughs) I was thinking about that. And Adam's like, what's going on with that? Everybody gets a partner, but not me. And Adam was sad and all alone. And according to God's own declaration, it was not good. So, verse 21 of Genesis 2, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And here we see God's good design of marriage developing in this. God gives away the first bride. God creates and gives away the first bride. He doesn't hide her from Adam. He doesn't make Adam work for her. He doesn't sit Adam down and give him some threat speech while cleaning his shotgun. The text says he brought her to the man. Now, I'm not saying the threat shotgun thing's a bad idea. I'm not saying that. All right? We could seal the deal, invite Pastor Tony over, I'll wear a tank top, and we'll punk these young guys coming and trying to date your daughters. All right? I'm available to you in that. I'm going to put myself out there for you. I'm going to make myself available to all you dads. Okay? I'm not saying it's a bad idea. What I am saying is that God gave away the first bride. He creates the woman for a very specific purpose of giving her away to the man. This is God's design and God's delight. He brings her to the man. So God gives away the first bride. We also see that God performs the very first wedding ceremony. We see this in verse 24 of Genesis 2. Right after Adam says the very first wedding vows ever recorded in verse 23, we read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is where God defines and declares the first marriage. Now what I want to do is I want to pair Genesis 2.24 with Matthew 19 and Jesus' words, okay? 
So let's look at what Jesus has to say about this passage here in Genesis 2, 24. It reads this way. Jesus answered, after being asked about divorce, he answers this way. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2, 24. Jesus goes on, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now the reason that I pair these verses together is because I want you to see that even though Genesis 2.24 is penned by the hand of Moses, Jesus attributes those words to Jesus or God himself. Even though Genesis 2.24 is penned by the hand of Moses, Jesus attributes those words to God himself. And this is our view of the scriptures. This is our view of the inspiration of scriptures. Though it was written by the hand of men, it was inspired so that it is the very words of God. And Jesus says, no, look it. He who created them male and female from the beginning, he said in Genesis 2.24, he said that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's declaration. It's God's declaration. Genesis 2.24, friends, is key. It's key. And at this very moment, God spoke both the design of marriage and the first marriage ever into existence. And in Genesis 2.24, God defines marriage and performs the very first marriage ceremony. So, first part of the point, marriage was designed by God. Now let's look at the second part of the first point. Marriage is designed by God to display the gospel. And this point is going to set up the rest of the message. And for this, we turn to Ephesians 5.31 and 32. So we go from Genesis and Moses to Jesus in the Gospels. Now we go to Paul in the epistles, and we see that Paul brings up this very familiar text again. He says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look at what he says now. He adds to it. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ in the church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Here we see Paul quote that defining marriage text from Genesis 2, Matthew 19. And then he drops a huge gospel bomb on marriage. He drops a huge atomic gospel bomb right into this whole marriage conversation. And Paul says that in a very mysterious and profound way, those words written in Genesis 2.24 about marriage actually refer to Christ and his relationship to the church. Marriage refers, friends, to Christ and his relationship to the church. And now what Paul is telling us as this idea of marriage develops in the scriptures what he is telling us is that when God designed marriage, he did so with a very specific purpose to pattern it after Christ's covenant commitment to his church. Marriage points to the gospel. Marriage points to Christ and the church. And what that means is this. Marriage serves a greater purpose beyond itself. Marriage serves a greater purpose beyond itself. And that greater purpose is to point us to the gospel this relationship serves a greater purpose, and that greater purpose is to point us to the greater relationship of Christ and his church. This is a very interesting twist, considering the design of marriage. And so now as we consider marriage and gospel in these terms, as Paul has shared, the similarities really are profound. 
So here's the gospel in marital terms. Hear this. Christ often refers to himself as the bridegroom. That's a term that he uses of himself. Elsewhere in scripture, others ascribe this term of bridegroom to Christ. And the church is often referred to as the bride. Christ, as the bridegroom, he comes to earth to get his bride, the church. And in order for, in order for Christ to come and gather his bride to himself, he knows that he needs to purchase this bride with his own blood because this bride has accrued an infinite amount of moral debt because of her sin. Christ knows that there's a price to be paid. And even though this bride is unlovely, and even though this bride is undeserving, Christ chooses to love this bride still. And even though this bride is faithless and unworthy of this kind of love, Christ chooses to sacrifice himself for his bride still. The bridegroom gives himself up for his bride. He dies for his bride and brings her now into a relationship called the new covenant. The new covenant. And this is the new covenant relationship of salvation. This is the new covenant that we just got done celebrating in the Lord's table. As we pick up the cup and Jesus says, this refers to the cup of the new covenant. Drink this. This is salvation. For all of us who are in Christ, we've been brought into this relationship. And the promises or the vows of this relationship, of the new covenant, are this. I will be your God and you'll be my people. And I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. And I will never leave you and never forsake you. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. And I will never leave you and never forsake you. These are the promises to us in Christ. These are one-way vows. Christ makes these vows to the church and asks the church for nothing in return. It's by sheer grace. And in a similar way, on his wedding day, a groom stands at the front and on a stage like this. I've done weddings from right here. I got married from right here. A groom stands in front of all those witnesses. And he comes to claim his bride. And he says to her, I will be your husband, and you will be my wife. And even though we are a flawed and sinful people, I will never leave you and never forsake you. Do you see it? Do you get it? Till death do us part, so long as you both shall live, are both covenant commitments that ultimately reflect God's new covenant commitment to us in Christ. This is the design of marriage. It is to point us to the gospel the new covenant commitment that I will never leave you, never forsake you, till death do us part. And this is why we say marriage is a covenant commitment, because it was designed by God to point to and reflect the greater covenant commitment that Christ has made with us, his bride. And so this is what we mean when we say that marriage was designed by God to put the glorious gospel of Christ on display. This is God's intention for marriage. So if you're married, that is why you're married. You are married to bring glory to God's gospel. And if you hope to be married, that should be your desire. That should be your desire, to glorify Christ. Now, in order for us to talk about marriage as displaying the good news of the gospel, we need to talk about the bad news of sin. The Bible's answer for what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with you, what's wrong with your spouse, and what's wrong with your marriage is this biblical word, sin. Okay? What's wrong with you, your spouse, and your marriage is sin. And we see sin's beginnings as we continue in the narrative of Genesis 
chapter 3. Genesis 2 ends with God defining and declaring the first marriage. Genesis 3 then begins to describe the biblical account of this newly married couple and their fall into sin. This event is known as the fall. And we're not going to look at it. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Basically, these newlyweds on their honeymoon decide that life and marriage is best lived according to their own rules and their own desires And they seek to be their own authorities in their own lives, and they reject God's. And they eat of the fruit of the tree that God had said not to, that was in the middle of the garden. They push God aside, they reject his authority, and they seek to live life on their own terms. Eve and Adam are deceived, and they eat of the fruit of the tree. And in that very moment, in that very moment in Genesis 3, sin enters into the world. Sin enters into this world and enters into this relationship, and its powerfully destructive presence throws everything into chaos. Throws everything into chaos, throws everything into dysfunction, and it throws everything into decay, including this first marriage, and consequently every marriage that would follow it. Sin has entered into the world, it has entered into this first marriage, and consequently every single marriage after it. And so the hurt, the struggle, The frustration and the brokenness of your marriage trace all the way back to Genesis 3. That is where it began. And if you and I are to have the gospel at the center of our marriages, we need to first recognize our need for the gospel. If we're to have the gospel at the center of our marriages, we need to first recognize our need for the gospel, which leads me to my next point. Marriage reveals our need for the gospel. Marriage reveals our need for the gospel. If you tell me that you haven't experienced the effects of sin and the fall in your marriage, I don't believe you. You're lying. All of us have. All of us do. You know, all of us experience relational brokenness. Every single one of us. It's not just unique to marriage. All of us experience this, married or not. Whether the context be our families, our neighborhoods, our friendships, the workplace, and even the church. But for those of us who are married, we know that our marriages are not exempt from sin's effects. In fact, marriage seems to have this very unique and special ability to shed light on our fallenness. Amen, spouses? It has this very unique and special ability to show us our sin. You know, it's been said, if you want to see how selfish and sinful you are, get married. If you want further proof, have kids. Right? (laughs) Marriage, magnifying glass. Kids, microscope right? Your selfishness is all over the place. Marriage exposes you. It tends to do this. It exposes your heart, and it exposes who we really are. There's just something about it. And in a very odd way, the relationship of marriage that was designed to reflect God's glory now becomes the very relational context that exposes how much we fall short of God's glory. The relationship that was designed to reflect God's glory becomes the very context that exposes how much we fall short of that same glory. Why is this? Well, how does, why does marriage have this knack for doing this? It's because in most relationships, we can kind of come and go as we please, right? There's not as much at stake. There's not as much pressure. We can come and go as we please. We fly under the radar. The real us is rarely ever exposed. You know, this is one of the downsides of dating, it said that in dating, you're in marketing and advertising phase, right? I'm in marketing and adver- advertising mode. You're always putting your best foot forward. You're never seen without your makeup. You always got cologne on. 
You're always putting your best foot forward. You're always the best version of yourself. This is what we do in dating. And so you marry what seems to be a great guy and a great gal and a perfect fit. But after you're married, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. After you're married, the real you comes out. The darkness of our hearts that has long laid dormant and hidden from others begins to surface, and it can get ugly. Do you guys remember that scene in The Avengers when Thor's hammer meets Captain America's shield and levels like a square mile of trees? You, guys, you, know, you know that scene? If you haven't seen it, at the beginning of The Avengers, it's kind of like this collection of all the, like, the awesome superheroes, right? And they're like fighting with each other at first before they come to see that we need to be on the same team and fight a greater evil. And so Iron Man and Thor are duking it out, and Captain America comes in, and he's going to be the peacemaker. And so he stands in between the two, and Thor's like, dude, you're in my way. And he throws his hammer, and it meets Captain America's shield, and this cosmic explosion levels a square mile of trees. That scene is pretty similar to what happens in marriage when two sinners who pledge allegiance only to themselves become one flesh and come under the same roof. It's like an explosion right in the middle of the kitchen. It has nothing to do with food, right? <laughs> or maybe it does have something to do with food. I don't know. And when this happens... When you come under the same roof, when you become one flesh, and, and this, starts to, this starts to happen, and, and you start to be revealed, you wonder, where did all this anger come from? Where did all, all this frustration and bitterness come from? I never knew I was capable of such envy and frustration and, and craziness. I never knew that I was just this selfish. And in that very moment, if we would have gospel lens, if we would have gospel eyes, we would see that something gracious is happening. Something good and gracious is happening. Our sin is being exposed, and with it, our need for the gospel. Our sin is being exposed, and with it, our need for the gospel. You know the prerequisite to receiving God's grace is realizing that you need it. The prerequisite to receiving God's grace is realizing that you need it. And marriage shows us this in a big way. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful, couples, because if we fail to see that the greater purpose for our marriage is is to display the gospel, we'll fail to see that the tension in our marriages is leading us to a greater understanding of his grace and we'll misinterpret all these interactions in a variety of ways. If we fail to see that there's a greater purpose and if we don't have a gospel lens, all this tension, all this frustration, all this sin, we'll misinterpret that in a variety of destructive ways. We need to have a gospel lens in our marriages. And this leads me to five ways that marriage is redeemed by the gospel. Five ways that marriage is redeemed by the gospel. The first one is this. Marriage is redeemed by the gospel when you discover that marriage was never designed to cause anyone to live happily ever after, but to make you like Jesus. Marriage was never designed to cause you to live happily ever after, but to make you like Christ. Listen to what Paul Tripp says in his book on marriage. God's grace is intended to explode your selfishness. His grace purposes to expose and free you from your bondage to you. His grace is meant to bring you to the end of yourself so that you'll finally begin to place your identity, your meaning and purpose and your inner sense of well-being in him, Christ. So he places you in a comprehensive relationship with another flawed person. And he places that relationship right in the middle of a very broken world. 
To add to this, he designed circumstances for you that you would have never designed for yourself. All of this is meant to bring you to the end of yourself because that is where true righteousness begins. It doesn't seem like it, but this is the great grace of marriage to expose the both of you and your need for the gospel and to bring a humility to your hearts. And it's painful at first, but it's freeing you. It's freeing you from yourself. It's freeing you from the death of living for yourself. It's freeing you from the death and the damage of pledging allegiance to your own kingdom and to come and enjoy living for God's kingdom. Trip goes on. The troubles that you face in your marriage are not an evidence of the failure of grace. No, these troubles are the grace. They are the tools God uses to pry us out of the stultifying confines of the kingdom of self. This is what God's doing, friends. He's rescuing you from yourself. And some of you would ask, why would God do that? Why, why this route? Why this process? Why this way? Why would he do this? Because God wants to conform you to the image of Christ. If you're here and you're in Christ, that is God's aim in your life, is to make you like Jesus. And whatever means he needs to use to do that, he's going to do that. That's God's desire. Romans 8, he wants to make you like Christ. And marriage just tends to be the tool that God uses in many of our lives. Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, gets at this exact thing when he asks this question. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than he did to make us happy? You know, and this is where a lot of marriages get sideways. A lot of marriages get sideways because they see their new spouse, they see this new marriage, they see this new house and this new everything as the thing that's going to finally fulfill them and make them happy. Pam and I did this. My wife Pam and I, we did this. Despite having two sets of premarital counseling, we did Bethel's premarital counseling and then we met with another couple. And despite that, we had a very, very rough first couple of years. And Pam told me I could tell you guys that. Because we tell all the couples that come through our house that same thing. We love to tell the story of God's grace. We had a very, very rough couple of first couple of years of marriage. Marriage exposed us. It exposed our selfishness. It exposed all of our, our unreasonable expectations. Our unreasonable expectations of marriage. Our unreasonable expectations of, uh, of each other. And instead of humbly looking inward and having a gospel lens and seeing that God was exposing us to his glory, instead of humbly looking inward and bringing us to a point of humility and worship and rejoicing in God's grace and forgiveness, instead, we started pointing fingers. Instead of rejoicing in the gospel, we started resenting. We said, no, you're the problem. I'm not the problem. You are. And this marriage is the problem. And there was lots of strife. And there was lots of fighting. We weren't wise to the painful grace that God was showing us in our marriage. And we misinterpreted it as something negative, when in fact God was rescuing us from ourselves and bringing us into greater dependence upon his son. And we're discovering that. We have a long way to go, but we're discovering that, which leads me to number two. Marriage is redeemed by the gospel when you discover that your spouse is not your savior. Marriage is redeemed by the gospel when you discover that your spouse is not your savior. Now, some people have their spouse and their savior confused at first. Pam and I certainly did. And we don't blatantly say this like, you are my God. But subtly in the heart, there's expectations. There's things, there's hopes that we're placing on our spouses. 
And some truly look to their spouse to be the one that's going to be their all in all and fulfill their happy life and the longings of their heart. Some place huge amounts of pressure on their spouse and on their marriage. A pressure that's only intended to be on the shoulders of God. A pressure only intended to be on the shoulders of their actual Savior, Christ. But in marriage, they quickly discover the truth between their spouse and their real Savior. The one bore God's wrath in your place on a cross. The other keeps leaving their underwear all over the place and all the lights on and watches sports when they're supposed to be taking long walks on the beach with me and talking about his feelings. Right? This is not my, my Savior. My Savior doesn't stink like this and watch sports. Like, you're not Jesus. The one rose again from the grave after three days. The other just managed to turn food into something completely inedible and unrecognizable. The one is the beautiful, eternal son of God. The other looks like someone who is raised by wolves in the morning with really, really bad breath. This is not my beautiful savior. This is something different. The one is the sinless Christ who lived the perfect life. And the other just sinned against me and hurt me in a deep way. A lot of husbands and wives are looking to their spouses to provide what only God can. There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. A lot of marriages can be redeemed by coming to the conclusion that their marriage and their spouse were never, ever, ever intended to provide what only God can in Christ. Husbands and wives, stop placing a burden on each other to be your savior and instead help each other to enjoy your actual savior and to lead each other in that process. Number three, marriage is redeemed by the gospel when you discover that Christ's death is sufficient to forgive all your sins, your spouse's sins, and the sins of your marriage, past, present, and future. You know, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing in marriage to come to your spouse, and instead of justifying your sin, instead of arguing your point, instead of shifting the blame, instead of ignoring your sin, you come and you confess, and you say, you know what, you're right. You're right. And you just stop arguing and justifying and defending yourself sinfully, and you confess, you know, you're right. I am a sinner. I am overbearing. I'm harsh. I'm disrespectful. I've been a nag. That was rude. I didn't consider you. I've been neglecting your needs. I've been lazy. I've been passive. I haven't been leading you well. I've been making it hard for you to lead me well. I've been unforgiving. I've been selfish. And the list goes on and on to the hundreds of other sins we commit in marriage. The power of confession of sin, to say, you're right, I do that. The power of confessing sin and then realizing that we have a savior, a sufficient savior for that sin. Both of us do. She does and I do. And then extending that forgiveness towards one another. We take this forgiveness, we take this love, we take this sufficient savior that's come to us in our sin and we take that and we bend it towards one another and we forgive each other right there. That power is massive in marriage and a marriage can be redeemed and transformed when just one person sees their sin and humbly confesses the way that they've damaged their relationship and then grace is applied then forgiveness is applied, then mercy is applied, and then the gospel is glorified. You see how that happens? The gospel is glorified in marriage, not so much in our perfection, but in our sin. We extend the grace and love and forgiveness of the gospel to one another. That's how the gospel is glorified in marriage. 
Number four, marriage is redeemed when we discover that marriage is more about telling the truth about the gospel than it is about staying in love. Marriage is redeemed when we discover that marriage is more about telling the truth about the gospel than it is about staying in love. You know, a lot of couples get discouraged and give up early on in their marriage because they're more concerned with preserving an emotional connection, an emotional connection that our culture interprets as love. They're more concerned with preserving that emotion than they are keeping covenant. You know, emotional connections and what we call love or what we describe as being in love, that ought to exist in marriage. That ought to be there, but it ebbs and flows. It comes and it goes. Every marriage has its seasons. It has seasons of closeness and connection. There's also seasons of distance and discouragement. Sometimes marriages experience extreme tragedies, tragedies of loss, tragedies of deep, deep sin, and even infidelity. In every and any season, a marriage that displays the gospel includes spouses who keep their covenant so long as they both shall live because Christ keeps his covenant with us forever, and marriage ought to display that. We display the gospel when we say, regardless of how you treat me and regardless of what I got going on, I'm still going to remain committed to you because Christ remains committed to me even in my sin. John Piper says this about this point. He says, keeping covenant with your spouse is as important as telling the truth about God's covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Marriage is not mainly about being or staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way he relates to his people. It's about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. Here's what I would say to a spouse who's really struggling right now, loving a difficult spouse. Display the gospel. Christ has stuck with you and endured you and your sin. Endure your spouse. Endure this season. Trust in God. Bear fruit. Bring glory to the gospel. Stay committed. Stay committed. The last way marriage is redeemed by the gospel, and this is my last point, marriage is redeemed by the gospel when we discover that marriage functions best according to the gospel. Marriage functions best according to the gospel. Marriage was designed by God to display the gospel. And that will be true to the degree that we find traces of the gospel in our marriages. And if marriage was designed by God to display the gospel, that also means that marriage functions the way it was intended to best according to the gospel. It's my conviction that the gospel is the power of God to save. Amen? We agree with that. I also believe that the gospel is the power of God to fulfill everything that God's called us to in the Christian life. Meaning it's not just the power of God to save, it's also the power of God to sanctify and to grow and to obey and to do all that God's called us to think, be, and do. For everything, everything that God's called us to do, there are specific enlightening and enabling resources in the gospel. And this is specifically true in our marriage. And what this means is that in Christ we find the means, the model, and the motivating power to be the husbands and the wives that God has designed us to be. And thus, we will have marriages that reflect the glorious gospel. So for example, are there resources in the gospel as we seek to serve and sacrifice one another this next week? Are there resources in the gospel, power in the gospel for us to serve and sacrifice this next week, our spouse? Mark 10, 45 says this of Jesus, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
the Son of God who was worthy of all the glory and worship the world had to offer, came not to be served, but to serve and give himself up for his bride. So I'll ask again, are there resources in the Son of God, in the gospel, in the good news, to set your own needs aside this week and sacrificially serve your spouse? Absolutely. This is what the gospel does. It transforms us from selfish folks into servants. It transforms us into selfish lovers to servant lovers. And thus our marriages display the gospel. We don't do this perfectly, but when there's repentance and when there's fruit, when there's traces of that, their marriage reflects the gospel. Here's another example. Are there resources in the gospel to stay committed in covenant relationship, no matter how bad it gets? Are there resources there? Absolutely. In Christ, God has made an eternal covenant commitment to never leave or forsake his bride and to remember her sins no more. You want to talk about a difficult marriage? You want to talk about a difficult spouse? You want to talk about a difficult bride? The church is a piece of work, right? We are the difficult spouse. You are the difficult bride. The church is the most difficult of all. She's faithless. She's always wandering off back into old relationships. She's very ungrateful. She's often double-minded. She's often cold towards her bridegroom. She's unresponsive. She doesn't communicate well. And she has a hard time letting people know that she's married. This is the church. This is us. This is you. And yet God remains committed to her in covenant. He remains committed to us in covenant, and he loves us still. Now, husbands and wives, you're both a part of that church. You're both a part of this bride that Christ has joined themselves to. You're both daily loved by God in this covenantal way. Both of you are daily loved with this kind of love. Find in God's consistent covenant love the power and the strength to remain in covenant, to remain and fight for your marriage no matter what season it's in. How about this? Are there resources in the gospel as spouses seek to live out their roles? Are there resources in the gospel as we seek to daily extend grace, forgiveness, and mercy to one another in marriage? Are there resources in the gospel to do that? Are you kidding me? Right? Are you kidding me? The gospel is that Christ died to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. That is the gospel. Christ died and satisfied the righteous, righteous wrath of God in your place so that you can be forgiven. I think that there's resources in the gospel to satisfy your selfish little anger towards your spouse. If Christ's death can come and satisfy and stop dead in its tracks the wrath of God, I think there's power in the cross to satisfy and stop you from being angry towards your spouse. God's wrath, this big. Your wrath, this small. This small in comparison. God's wrath, righteous. Your wrath, probably often selfish and sinful. Absolutely, there's resources. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness are constantly flowing from God to us in Christ. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. I'll apply what we learned in 1 John from last week. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We are able to extend love, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness toward our spouse because he initiated us. God initiated us with his love, his grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy. We love in marriage because we've been loved. And this 
binding marriage of the new covenant relationship of salvation. How about our roles? Our roles as husbands and wives. Are there resources for Christian husbands to live out their their God-assigned roles? This one's easy, right? Ephesians 5. I don't have time right now to read all of Ephesians 5, but this one's the no-brainer. Paul describes the husband's roles completely in terms of the gospel in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the easy one. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Die for her. Sacrifice for her. Initiate her. Provide for her. Allow her to flourish under your leadership. Be selfless. Anytime I need to look and ask, okay, what do you want me to do in my marriage as a husband? I need to look to Christ. And Paul makes that very, very easy. But here I want to ask this a little bit harder question. Are there resources in the gospel for wives to live out their roles of submission, help, and respect? Are there resources in the gospel for wives to live out their roles? Here's the test, right? What does the gospel have to do with that? What does, the God, what does Jesus, the bridegroom, have to do with the bride? He's a man. He's not a woman. Where do we find resources in the gospel for wives and their roles? I want to show you something from 1 Peter. In Peter, in 1 Peter, he goes through this short, beautiful explanation of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Here's what he says. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Listen to the way he's beautifully explaining Christ here. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Here's this beautiful summary of the gospel for Peter. Here's his two next words. Likewise, wives. Likewise, wives. In just the same way that I've been talking about Jesus, likewise, wives. And what Peter is saying with this one word, likewise, is that all the specifics of the wife's role of help, submission, respect, and service in the power of Christ, that's found. In Christ, all the power to fulfill your role is in Christ. You want to talk about submission? You want to talk about following someone else's lead? Christ kept silent in his darkest moments and trusted and submitted to the Father's will for him and his sufferings. Christ submitted. God's calling wives to submit. God's calling wives to help. Christ did both. Christ did both. I don't know if you remember, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus trusted, even though he struggled with the decision. Father, if this cup can pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Christ submitted, even though he really struggled and he was grieved by the thought. He trusted and submitted, even though he wondered and asked if there was another way. Jesus beautifully submitted to and deferred to the Father's leadership in the cross. And without that submission, there would be no good news. Without that submission, there would be no salvation, wives. You want to talk about being a servant helper, right? That word helper in Genesis 2, I will make a helper fit for him. That same word is used of God all over the Old Testament. I will make a helper fit for him. That same word in Hebrew, used of God all over the place. The same word in Greek, 
an equivalent Jesus uses of himself in John 14. He refers to himself as a helper. God himself is a helper. The whole ministry of Christ was to service and help the church. That's all Jesus does to the church is help. That's all he does. Wives, listen to me. Your role is not demeaning. It is nothing short of robust Christ-likeness. Nothing short. Be encouraged by that. See the, beautiful, see the beauty in that. Friends, in closing, there is very real power in the gospel for your marriage. I'm not talking about self-help. I'm not talking about moral improvement. I'm talking about a love so powerful that when realized and believed, it can melt the stone-cold hearts of both spouses in a marriage and cause them to love each other instead of fight. To cause them to love each other and forgive one another and, and shed mercy towards one another and extend grace to one another instead of being cold and unforgiving and bitter. <coughs> marriage refers to Christ and the church. It is designed by God to display the glorious gospel of his covenant-keeping love to us in Christ. And our marriages will do that when we find traces of the gospel in our marriages. So, in closing, as we go, may we embrace God's painful grace as he shows us our need for the gospel through marriage. May the gospel redeem our marriages from all that it was never intended to be and see the wisdom in God's design. May we also come to see the powerful resources we have in Christ, our Savior, to live out the gospel in our roles and in our marriages. And finally, may the marriages at Bethel Church be transformed by the gospel so that they will tell the truth about the gospel, so that they will tell the truth about who Jesus is in Northwest Indiana. Let's pray.